Welcome to Follow Him, a weekly podcast dedicated to helping individuals and families with their Come Follow Me study. I'm Hank Smith. And I'm John, by the way. We love to learn. We love to laugh. We want to learn and laugh with you. As together, we follow Him. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Follow Him. I'm your host, Hank Smith, and I'm here with my almost translated co-host, John, by the way. John, to me, you are almost translated. Almost translate that. <laughs> That's not what I meant. We're talking about Enoch today. I was like, what's, what's, what's he doing? But have it been translated correctly? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, um... Welcome, uh, everybody, to follow him. <laughs> John, we get to spend our entire day in one chapter, and so I had to find someone who could who could teach us, I mean, all, how many verses here? Uh, 60, 69 verses yeah. of Moses chapter 7. Uh, tell us who's with us here. Yes, I'm very excited today. Um, we have Dr. Avram Shannon with us. He was born in Quantico, Virginia, uh, spent most of his young life in Virginia. He served his mission in the Oregon-Portland Mission and then Washington-Kennewick Commission after the mission was split. Uh, Dr. Shannon earned a bachelor's degree in Near Eastern Studies from Brigham Young University, a Master of Studies in Jewish Studies from the University of Oxford, um, and a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Cultures with a graduate interdisciplinary specialization in religions of the ancient Mediterranean from Ohio State University. And he and his Ohio wife, Thora, State. have seven children. When I tell my students, um, you know, when they have questions about Judaism, I say, you know, if I don't know, I know who I can ask. It's Dr. Avram Shannon. So give us a little bit of that. I'm sure it might come up through our discussion today, but you, your mom grew up Jewish. Right. So the whole story is my great great grandmother. So her great grandmother was Jewish. Okay. Um, and came to the United States. And then it's hard to be Jewish in America. And so they, they, they Christianized after about a generation. And then my mother converted back to Judaism a, as an adult. Um, and she was actually pretty orthodox. She went to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. So not Ohio State, but Ohio University um, down in Athens. And after she finished her degree, she either was going to go to New York and join the Hasidim, the Orthodox Jews um, in New York, or she was going to go to um, Seattle to go to the University of Washington for a graduate program. Um, she chose to go to Seattle rather than go to um, New York. Um, she moved into an apartment – there were, I think, seven girls in the apartment. Six of them were Latter-day Saints, and um, she was number <laughs> seven. She actually, for a while there, she was going to, to shul on Saturdays, and then she'd attend church with the uh, with Latter-day Saints on, on Sundays. They gave her a calling because she could direct music, so she was directing the music <laughs> um, before. She, she, she asked me for about two years. So she converts, and then uh, Avram's a very Jewish name, I assume. I uh, yes, Avram is a very Jewish name. Um, and so it's funny because all my kids – I was actually I was talking to my kids this morning about this actually. All of my siblings have scriptural names. So there's Joshua, there's me, um, Samuel, Luke, and then um, Sariah from the Book of Mormon there is my um, sister. Avram being the it's, – it's the Hebrew form of, of Abram. Stephen Ricks, you know, the Hebrew teacher here uh, over at BYU, calls me his Judeo-Celtic friend because of <laughs> uh, oh, my name's – Judeo-Celtic. <laughs> That's so great. Uh, Avram, this week uh, is our first Come Follow Me lesson in which we are, we're just in one single chapter, Moses 7. So how do you want to take us through this? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hand the reins over to you. Okay. Thanks. So, so Moses 7 is really interesting. The book of Moses is, is JST Genesis. It's, 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 you know, an extract of Joseph Smith's um, JST, which is important to us because it's not really a standalone book, right? Sometimes we treat the, 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 the book of Moses like it's, you know, but it, it's just pulled out of, um, Genesis. But Moses 7 is intriguing because it's one of those few portions in, um, the book of Moses that doesn't have strong background 
in in Genesis, right? You know, you read Moses, Moses two, Moses three. Um, those are creation accounts and stuff, which we've talked about previously. Most of it is just, I mean, Genesis with a few changes here and there. But again, Moses six and seven here, which I think is part of why the company focuses on this is because, you know, you have the other previous ones, you have oh, Genesis here, you have Genesis and Moses together. Here, really, you've just got um, the book of Moses, which is important for us because as Latter-day Saints, Enoch's kind of a big deal for us yeah. as Latter-day Saints. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was extremely important in the early restoration. He's extremely important to Joseph Smith's self-understanding as a prophet, Right, we don't have the Doctor Covenants anymore, but you know, back in the day, in the early sections, when they had sort of the code names that they would do for you yeah, know for right. the various figures in there, one of Joseph's was Enoch. Um, Joseph was identified in Revelation as Enoch. A couple of verses in Genesis are the Genesis for Moses chapter six and seven. Is that right? That is right. So it, it, it's, it's Genesis 5, 21 through 24. And, it, and it's part of this larger part where you have, you know, the description of so-and-so lived so many years, begat so-and-so, and lived the enemy right. so many years after that, and then died, right? It's, it's, it's this genealogical table. And again, in Genesis, the primary purpose is to get between sort of Seth and Noah. But in the middle there, there's this weird little bit. It says, and Enoch, this is verse 21 of Genesis 5. And Enoch lived 60 and five years and begat Methuselah. Okay, so far, exactly what we expect. Yeah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. Okay, there's that walk with God. That's a little bit different. All the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. One of the things is, as Latter-day Saints, we're kind of spoiled sometimes because Mormon holds our hand a lot. Mormon kind of walks through, explains what he's doing, explains what his sources are, explains why he's doing it. Mormon kind of walks us through things. Um, the biblical authors and editors don't do that. They presume that we're kind of uh, already insiders as we read this stuff. There's no explanation about what it means to walk with God in Genesis. <laughs> as Latter-day Saints, we're predisposed to read it positively because um, we have the book of Moses. Um, there's actually a rabbinic source about Enoch. Enoch has kind of a, an intriguing mixed tradition in um, in Judaism. Um, there's p- some parts of Judaism that really like Enoch. There's other parts of Judaism that's like, eh. Basically, they say, you've got two kids. And one kid is always obedient, stays next to you, does everything you ask. And one kid runs everywhere around the store and is always touching things and pushing things. And you can never find them. And basically they ask, which of these two kids are you going to make hold your hand? Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's the one so that, Enoch, you know. So Enoch they re- walked with God because he was all over the place. That's how they understand <laughs> it. Exactly. Oh. Interesting. <laughs> Mormon and and the biblical authors reminds me of like a tour guide. You've got Mormon, the tour guide, who's who's explaining every little detail. And then you've got this biblical tour guide who's like, oh, that was Enoch. Yeah, he walked with God. All right, let's keep going. Let's keep Wait, going. Wait, what? <laughs> no, it's true. So Joseph Smith gets to these four verses and then something happens. Like with Moses 1, he has this v- visionary revelatory expansion um, to Genesis. Again, the equivalent there, you know, you start there in 6, right? Again, you're going straight on through, right? Um, Moses 6, 17, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalil, Jared, and then, you know, and then Enoch, yeah, right in verse 25, Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. Um, yeah, that's that's verse 21 of Genesis. Exactly. It's directly Genesis. And then, yeah, it, then it changes. <laughs> it uses this narrative. And Enoch lived 65 years and begat, you know, and journeyed, and journeyed to the land among the people. And as he journeyed, so you have this call narrative right in the middle there. And so what, what Joseph does through Revelation is the JST here is he basically expands the Enoch story and explains. So what does it mean for Enoch to walk with God? Why was Enoch not? What does it mean that God took him? What does it mean when God took him? What does it mean for these things? So yeah, four, four verses becomes, um, <laughs> I can't even count them all here. It's about a hundred verses of, of, of material, maybe a little more than that. Yeah, I'm going to write that down. Four verses becomes a hundred plus. Yeah. The JST, it tends to be expansive 
vis-a-vis um, Genesis, of course. But this is one of the places where you really see that expansion happening um, extensively. It's very clear from Genesis that Enoch doesn't die because everybody else does, right? I mean, the formula is, and so and so lived so many years and begat many sons and daughters and died. Um, that Seth, Cain, and Jared. So it's very clear whatever's happening in Genesis, Enoch isn't dying. It breaks the formula there. So there is something weird there, which, by the way, is why Enoch becomes, in in certain parts of ancient literature, he becomes kind of this. Because he's the one in the list that didn't didn't die. Right. Biblical interpreters then and now are heavily attuned to weird things in scripture. Right. And so, and the, and that's going to be, it's, it's, I call them sort of the knobs in the text. It's when you, when you're reading along, you, you, you kind of hit something and you're like, I got to figure out what's going on here. Those become places where you're going to get the most sort of interpretive explanation and exploration. And, and this is when, and, and, and that, that's true JST too. The, the Lord gives the most sort of revelation on the knobbiest places in, in <laughs> the, the text. Avram, is that the only mention of Enoch in the Bible? Is these four verses in Genesis? No, he's mentioned twice in the New Testament. So he's mentioned once in um, the Epistle to the Hebrews, and he's mentioned once in the Epistle of Jude. Um, in the Epistle of Hebrews, he's up there in chapter 11 in um, – What's, um, again, the great table of faith, you know, by faith, they did all these things. He's there, um, by faith, he was not. So, again, Hebrews actually understands, uh, what's going on there in Genesis. Very similar to Latter-day Saints would. There's nothing there that's kind of weird for us. There's no city. We'll get to the city in a second. The city is distinctive to the book of Moses. So, it's kind of our most important part of the Enoch narrative, because it feeds so much into our own, um, tradition, is distinctive to Restoration Scripture. The Jude one is interesting because there Enoch's not important except insofar as Jude quotes an apocryphal book of Enoch. So as part of this intro I was talking about in, um, in the book of uh, in Enoch as a figure, you find actually there's a whole subcategory of Enoch literature. There's a whole subcategory of ancient stuff that's about and from and sort of through um, Enoch. Um, so when is this, when is this, uh, these books, when are these found? What, where do they come from? The, are they called the book of Enoch? Is so that- one of them is, okay. Scholars okay. kind of call them one, first Enoch, second Enoch, third Enoch, but that's just because we're trying to work through them um, in terms of our, again, they're not ancient designations. They date, Date of composition is probably um, for, for, for the English really flourishes between about 1 BC, 100 BC rather, about so about the first century BC and about the fourth century AD is kind of the flourishing of sort of this Enoch literature. The biggest, and most famous is probably First Enoch. Um, that's the one that um, that Jude quotes there in the New Testament. The Lord comes with ten thousand of His saints. Um, that 10,000 of his saints that comes from Jude, um, coming from, um, first Enoch. Um, that, that's our earliest one. So the book of Enoch is, or the first Enoch here, and actually all the Enoch stuff is part of this kind of, one of the things we think of as we, as we think about the process of our scriptures coming together, it's worth noting that in the ancient world, we didn't have, especially originally ancient world, we didn't have books. Right, the Bible wasn't a book; it was a um, what, what, it, primarily ancient Israel was primarily a scroll technology, and so and so you had scrolls. <laughs> hey, by the way, we're, we're we've come back to scrolling. We yeah. have, no, actually, yeah, we scroll um, down and now. <laughs> and, and 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 it's funny because the book is a superior piece of technology. Um, you can right. you know put your finger in, you can find things easier. Uh, but we've we took a step backwards when we uh, back to scrolling. <laughs> back to scrolling. No. Okay, so, sorry, sorry, I cut you no, off. That, 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 that's a valid point. That's why we went to books, right? right? And so, so the funny thing is, is that when you have books, the question's different with scrolls because scroll. We actually had these archaeologically, and um, scrolls you just had scroll cases, and so it wasn't whether you know. So you had a copy of Isaiah, and it was in a scroll. And you had a copy of, you know, the five books of Moses or whatever. You had your Pentateuch, your Torah, and it was a scroll. And, and the, the question, and you had your book of Enoch and it was a scroll. And, and so you had these, these very, and so, and so there was not 
as much need to determine what was the books that were you're going to read because you just you just collected them and they were just part of a sort of divine library. But the move to a codex technology, the move to books, suddenly the question becomes, what do you put between the covers? What gets to be there and what doesn't? And so there's all this stuff that circulated in the ancient world, scriptural, quasi-scriptural, whatever, that didn't make the cut. So along the, along the way to the creation of the Bible, as we know it, books got pushed off by some group or another. And the, the first, second, third Enoch, uh, these books got left behind. So for the Enoch stuff, again, um, Enoch's really intriguing because, again, it was not included because there were questions about authenticity. There were questions about – again, there's, a, there's another class of sort of apocryphal-type literature called pseudepigrapha, which is writings that we're not sure who the author is or writings that we know are later that seem to be attributed to an earlier author. And, and again, if you go out and read the Enoch, you say, oh, this is straight Enoch material. There are, by the way, connections between the apocryphal Enoch material – and between our Enoch material and the Book of Moses. There are connections. Um, we find the weeping God. We find Enoch has visions. Nibley thought that was a big deal. We find some names. There's a Mahija figure um, who he connected to um, the, the Mahuja in, um, in, in our apocryphal Enoch stuff. There are a couple of places where that, but there are lots of places where it's very, very, very different. Um, the, the way they treat angels, totally different from that. You know, that is a notion, you know, humans, angels, gods are the same kind of being, different spiritual um, ideas. Nowhere do you find. Angels are a separate class of created being. Um, there's no city. So, so there are connections to say, oh, this is neat. There are other places where you say, this is, this is, no, this is totally <laughs> different. This is not a Latter-day Saint um, scripture. Um, Okay. So. Well, so this is why this is why this is wonderful because we feel, you know, this is reliable. Our Moses chapter seven, six and seven about Enoch for us is no, this is scripture. This is we can count on this. Um, Avram, let me ask you a question. Uh, Josh Sears talked about this when we had him on. When he says, "Listen, the JST sometimes gives us back ancient text that was once written, and sometimes it's." It's just new revelation. Um, would you say um, – that's going to be – maybe it's impossible to say what Moses 6 and 7 is. Mm -hmm. So again, the question always is – and your point would be impossible to say. The question always is, what's your criteria? I.e., how right. would you tell? How would you know? Yeah. Right? Without access to an actual ancient text – you would you you couldn't know you, you you literally you literally cannot tell you cannot say yes this is definitely ancient because we don't have anything to check it against okay now with the Enoch material we do have ancient texts and there are some connections I already mentioned these right you know the weeping god and things like that. Um, you know, if I had my tie thrown over my shoulder, that's how I'd let my students know that I'm, you know, kind of <laughs> just spinning my wheels here for a second. Um, <laughs> but we can definitely say 100% Joseph Smith seems to tap into an Enoch tradition that has continuity with other Enoch traditions from the ancient world. Whether that was originally in Genesis or not, we cannot say. Um, but we, it's very clear that Joseph Smith taps into something that has ancient connections. And for me, at that point, again, there's nothing that proves the, you know, Joseph's prophetic, um, but the Holy Ghost. Um, but for me, that makes Joseph making it up no longer the easiest answer. It provides space for restoration. So, so I do think that there's, again, I think there's nothing an authentic and, and, and there is space here for Joseph uh, tapping into something that's very ancient. Yeah, um, I think our listeners are going to be interested in that. I think they they would say, "Does this mean that Joseph, you know, um, without having the materials that that later scholars have, got it? Wow, really close to right in a lot of places. Is that kind of what you're saying? If Joseph is guessing, he's guessing exactly right. It's kind of the um, the world's greatest guesser. Uh, the, the way I would pray. The way you know, it's the same thing with Book of Abraham stuff. There's place in Book of Abraham that are very much 
um, especially Abraham one that only fit in kind of second millennium BC um, material there. And again, if Joseph's guessing, he's guessing exactly right with that. Wow. Well, it just, it kind of makes you wonder what other backstories are there that we don't have. If, if from four verses in Genesis, we can get all of this, I wonder who else they, they went by kind of quickly in the, in Genesis that uh, has more that we'll get someday. Yeah, no, and it's actually a really key thing because, of course, one of the things that's intriguing just generally in reading scripture is learning, you know, that their issues are not our issues, right? When you realize that the authors and editors of most of the Old Testament were Judahite priests and scribes, suddenly you understand why the emphasis on priests and temples and Judahite kings and, i.e., their perspective feeds into it's part of why we get, I, I suspect, why we get more Josephite material in, say, the Book of Mormon. I was just reading the other day, you know, Moroni and the tradition of, you know, as as this cloth is torn, you know, the, the, the whole Joseph thing. We've got these extra Joseph traditions in the Book of Mormon, which makes sense because the Book of Mormon authors are Josephites. Are Josephites. Wow, that's great. That's why they're you mean focusing... Like, you mean like Joseph of Egypt? Yeah, I mean Joseph yeah. of Egypt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, like they're descended Lehi from comes Joseph. from, yeah. Lehi comes from Joseph, he learns, and then we learn from, from Alma that he comes through Manasseh. And so we would expect traditions about Joseph in a text like the Book of Mormon that we wouldn't expect from the biblical text. The biblical text is written by Judahites from a Judahite perspective and from a, um, a Levitical priesthood um, perspective. And so being aware of that, I, I think John's point is really good there. Being aware of that then helps us understand what is in and what's not. And of course, Joseph in the latter days is coming here. And one of the things the JST definitely does, the JST is a Bible for Latter-day Saints. It's a Bible for the restoration. The JST takes the Bible and says, look, this book still matters. And this book still matters for you guys right now. And so the Enoch material, especially with his emphasis on the building of Zion, is going to be something that the church needs right now. A very Latter-day theme that we talk about a lot. Yeah. Right. Yeah, something that mattered the, deeply to Joseph. Hmm. I was going to say, in the Doctrine and Covenants last year, almost you have the church organized, and then they start talking about Zion, yeah. the cause of Zion. And is was this coming from his work in the JST, at least – yeah, Some absolutely. It? Again, again, he, yeah. he, he, it's worth noting that, you know, these Genesis chapters, he's transiting these in like June and July of 1830, right? This is immediately after the restoration and the, the establishment of the church in these latter days. So this is directly feeding into, into what he's doing, what he's thinking about in his prophetic mission and his prophetic self-understanding. Okay. So seven, of course, builds right off of six. One of the things to remember, of course, as you read scripture is that um, chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They are almost all of them not original <laughs> to the text. If you go back to the Joseph Smith's original um, translation manuscripts, there are no chapter or verse divisions in the book of Moses. Those are put in by actually Brother Talmadge in 1902, 1902 um, image uh, version of, of this. So Moses 7 begins with a continuation of Moses 6. Moses 6 is all framed in terms of teachings to Adam. That's one of the key things. And that's really important as we think about what's going on then in Moses 7, because Enoch's, the Enoch material is actually, it's almost a, a bridge between in the same way again remember that chapter Genesis five is trying to get from from Seth to Noah. Noah's still a huge important deal, and so Moses seven, even with the Enoch material, it's Enoch bridging us between Seth and Noah, or between Adam and Noah, and Enoch providing this covenantal bridge between our first parents and between again because one of the things that Genesis is going to do, and actually Moses seven is going to set up for this. Genesis understands the flood as new creation. Um, the world is newly created. You get a new covenant. And, and so, and so it's, it's, it's pushing us there in this attempt uh, of bringing us through that. So I had said, you know, he says, first one, right? Behold, our father Adam um, taught these things. And many believed and become the sons of God. And many believed not. And this, by the way, this is part of this is a major theme major theme in the book of Moses is this notion of the two ways. This idea that, that they're 
sort of two ways to access Dominion, two ways to pick. You've got the Devil's Way. You've got um, the Lord's Way. You know, Cain versus Abel. You know, those who believed, those who followed, sons of God, daughters. Of, and again, it, it, it's always framing this in um, these dichotomies, um, which is you, you can you can choose one or the other. Right. Um, there, there, there are two ways to do this. Okay. And then um, Enoch, uh, again, he begins to prophesy. And so we have, we have sort of two prophecies in the Enoch. And it's worth noting here, especially as we're here in Moses 7, say, 3 through – we'll go 3 through uh, about 9. Right? You've got all these place names, right? Shum and Canaan and Henny and Omner and Shem and Hanner and Hananiah. We, of course, have no idea where these are. Um, uh, and we can't know where these are. They're, they're, they're not attachable to um, place names. And this is important because of that verse about Canaan there in verses um, 6 through 8. One of the things, of course, that people in the church, but especially people opposed to the church, have done with um, the Pro Great Price is they've used it to justify their racist readings and things, right? Or to accuse Latter-day Saints of being racist. And of course, there's some discussion about blackness and things here. Um, but it's worth noting, these are not the Canaanites from later in the Bible, first of all. Okay, so these are not the Canaanites in the land. Again, when, when Abraham comes to the land of Canaan, you know, when we get to in a couple chapters in Genesis, these are different people. There's also a tendency with this to, again, because of historical things and whatever, you know, there was, even in the church, and it's not just, it's not unique to Latter-day Saints, but, you know, to connect, say, oh, well, person of African descent couldn't have priests because they ended from Cain, and they'll point to verses like this here um, with that. But, of course, Cain is not Canaan. And, and so this is not talking about the descendants of Cain. I get sort of period, full stop. There's actually no discussion of Cain and priesthood anywhere in the scriptures. Not here, not in the book of Abraham. There is nowhere in scripture where Cain is discussed in connection to priesthood. Which is part of why the church now, again, disavows, it says, any explanation that described dark skin as a sign of God's disfavor. Um. Okay, so this is Enoch. He's prophesying, and the Lord says, prophesy to the people of Canaan. Um, but this is pre-flood, so we shouldn't connect these to the Canaanites that we're going to hear from in a, in a few in a few weeks. When we get into Genesis 11. Yeah. Right. And neither should we connect them to Cain. Both sides just separate them out. Since we don't know what any of these things are, we actually don't know what they're doing. Like I said, the ancient texts this all the time, right? They're always talking about things that make sense to them that don't matter to us. <laughs> but I do think this is this lead feeds into what's going on there. Is as, as we go to um, ten and eleven, that's I think where the real meat of this chapter begins. Um, in ten and eleven, again, the Lord says, "Go to this people and say to them, repent, lest I come out and smite you." We'll talk about that for a second. And he gave me a commandment that I should baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son, which will the grace and truth and of the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of the Father and the Son. And this is particularly important. This is probably where I would begin, um, where I would break, is probably here at um, 10, because this is what begins the beginning of sort of, we have sort of three things going on in 7. And the first of those is the establishment of Zion. Um and, and really, um, and this, of course, is part of why this has a resonance for Latter-day Saints. Okay. So this is, this is the message that the Lord says, this is Enoch, this is the message I want you to give. Exactly. And what I find so compelling about this is this tells us the principles on which Zion is established. Sometimes as Latter-day Saints, as we talk, we get this notion that there's some kind of special dispensation of doctrine or something that the Lord has to give us before we can establish Zion. The principles on which Zion was established by Enoch are repentance, faith, baptism. It's nothing particularly special. There's no particular change that we need to have in order to establish Zion. And this is something I find very important because we sometimes use that as an excuse not to try and establish Zion. Uh, Elder Christofferson gave a great talk 
called Come to Zion. But one of the things he points out is that we have a responsibility as Latter-day Saints to build Zion. That's part of what we are supposed to be doing. And one of the reason I love this here in, in Moses um, 10 and 11 is it reminds us that we're not waiting for something special to build Zion. We have the tools right now that we need to build Zion. Yeah, I'm seeing, I'm seeing all uh, first principles here, aren't you, John? Verse yeah, 10, repent, repent 11, baptize, baptize in 11, Holy Ghost in 11. 13, yeah, faith, and faith so 13. great was the faith of Enoch, yeah. Enoch's going to, he's going to start the message of how we're going to build Zion, and it's going to be the same things you and I hear today. That's right. Building Zion is not some kind of special extra thing that the Lord's people get on top of. It, it's, it's God's work, period. I mean, it's, it's the principle of the gospel. It's, 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 it's the fundamental, again, Doctrine and Covenants, we've been just talking about this last year. Doctrine and Covenants frames consecration, frames Zion in terms of the law of the celestial kingdom. I mean, this is, this, this is what God wants us to do. He wants his people to be one. And the foundation here is, I mean, yeah, yeah. if you just read 10 through 13, you'd have, you'd have uh, 2 Nephi 31 and 3 Nephi chapter 11 and all these this is how we're going to, if you really want to be part of my work, here is what you want to do. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Ghost, repent again in verse 12, verse 13, have great faith. faith. I love the prevalence of first principles in all of the scriptures. If, if they really are the first principles, then they really are the first principles, and we should expect to see them, and we do. <laughs> Can I, Avram, just ask you one more time? I. I think it was a really interesting point you made. So I, I put in my margin, did I write this right? A pre-flood Canaan, not related to the post-flood Canaan. That's right. So they just decided to name it that post-flood, but you know, we have no idea why. Or We don't have, part of the problem, of course, we don't have the underlying language for any of, so we don't know yeah. what this looks like. Is this the same, is, is it kind of on again, like you have in, in, in Genesis? Maybe, maybe <laughs> not. There's two or three letters that can um, have an ah vowel on them, and there's two or three, um, you know, there's a couple of Ks. You've got a cut and a ko um, in, in hmm. cut sounds in Hebrew. I would not even be comfortable saying this is even the same name. It might be, but, but then it certainly might not be. Yeah. Yeah, and Latter-day Saints would maybe have a uh, tendency to read this and go, oh, this is obviously the people of Cain and this is the same Canaan where Abraham goes and look, here's the, the blackness that came upon the children of Canaan. And all of a sudden we're making connections that, that the scriptures don't make. That's right. We always need to be very, 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 very careful about systematizing scripture. One of the things we do as Latter-day Saints is we're trying to circumscribe all truth in the one great whole. That's what we're trying to do. But sometimes we forget when we do that, that scripture is definitionally it's ad hoc revelation, right? It comes to certain people at certain times, and you can make connections. So I love what you, you – it might not even be the same word, even though to us it looks like exactly the same word. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. <laughs> so, so Enoch wants to build a people. This sounds, you know, this sounds a lot like Joseph Smith and even our day. He wants to build a people who center their life on God and, and give themselves to God. Uh, so what's the rest of his message? What are we going to do next? Yeah, I mean, and the, the beauty of this and the beauty of Moses 7 is, of course, Joseph Smith wanted to build a people who followed God and were one heart. President Nelson wants to build a people who, followed, who follow God or in one heart. Enoch did it. And so really the great beauty of, or rather God did it through Enoch, um, even. The great beauty of Moses 7 is we have a Zion success story. And those, unfortunately, are few and far between in Scripture. But here we have a success story. And again, you have to accept the land and things like that. But really, that brings us into, um, you know, 718. This, this is our Zion verse, right? And the Lord called his people Zion because they're of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. And again, in that great talk by Elder Christofferson, Elder Christopherson suggests, first of all, he points out, and I think this is really important. The Lord doesn't make his people Zion. He doesn't make them one heart, one mind. 
He doesn't um, drive out the poor among them. He doesn't make them dwell in righteousness. After they have become one heart mind, after they have um, eliminated poverty, after they have um, done these things, then the Lord says, and now you're Zion. Zion is something that we do. It's not something the Lord does to us. Um, the Lord called his people Zion because they were already one heart and one mind. They were already dwelling in righteousness. They ha- there were already no poor among them. Um, and I think so that's he, so key. Yeah, That word, the Lord called his people. The Lord didn't make his people Zion. The Lord called his people Zion be- yeah. because they chose it. And we might say they applied the principles of sure. Zion. They, they became of one heart, of one mind. They worked on being united and repenting and all of the right ap- applying the gospel together. I mean, there's still obviously grace in this, right? I mean, obviously, you, yeah. you can't repent without Jesus' grace. You, you know, I mean, absolutely. Can you um, remember, recall the reference, Elder Christopherson? I want to put it in my margin. That was... The, the talk's called Come to Zion, and Elder Christopherson gave an October conference of 2008. It's one of the great talks on Zion. It's just, it's just, just powerful stuff from Elder Christopherson there. One thing I, I, I learned last year by studying the Doctrine and Covenants that I, I don't think I'd ever really seen before is the Lord, the Lord says, here's, you know, here's Missouri, go build Zion. And, and they're so worried about the place and their enemies. And he doesn't seem overly concerned about the place or the enemies. It's always about the people. He's like, he said, I can take care of your enemies and the place is ready for you. It's about your hearts that I, that's the difficult part for, for the Lord. Cause I'm not going to force this on you. Cause the moment I force it on you, it's not Zion. Yes. And it's kind of actually funny there in Dr. Not funny. And it's funny in a sad way. I mean, you know, I mean, the Lord makes it very clear. It's like, this is your fault guys. Missouri was all your fault. I mean, it's the fact that the Lord does not let us off the hook for that one. He's like, you could have done this, but you didn't. Um, which is a little hard, but and actually one thing in terms of two ways, one of the things I love about Enoch City is there are actually two cities of Enoch in the book of Moses. If you remember all the way back in um, Moses 5, and also it's also there in, um, in Genesis, right? Remember Cain, Cain's a farmer, Cain's cursed, and this is very clear once again, by the way, the curse on Cain is that he can't farm anymore. That's very explicit from scripture. Cain's curse is he can't farm anymore. But what does he do? He goes and he builds a city. And he calls the name of that city. This is for, uh, Moses 5.42. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. So e- Cain also has a son named Enoch. And he also begat many sons and daughters. And he built a city, and he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And it's a place of, well, it's a place of industry and secret combination. So... Like every other city, basically. <laughs> so you have this these two cities build up, these two cities of Enoch. That's right. How fascinating. And the book of Moses does a comparison. Instead of saying, oh, cities are all bad, which, again, you could make an argument for that <laughs> in terms of what's going on there in Moses 5. Instead, what Moses does in Moses 7 and says, but look what you can do with cities if you do them God's way. Look what a redeemed city looks like. So Enoch city of Enoch is the city the way God wants cities to be. One heart, one mind, no poverty. Cain city of Enoch is the way that every other city in the world's ever looked like. People try, you know, it's, it's Korahor doctrine. I mean, the secret combinations are, are, are fundamentally fruited in this notion of everyone prospers according to their genius and you don't need anybody else. And again, fundamentally, Cain kills Abel because Cain sees Abel as an object, not as a person. And so you have these, the, again, this, this, this comparison the book of Moses is making between we have a city of Enoch here. This is the wrong way to do it. We have a city of here, city of holiness, Zion. This is the right way to do it. So how, I mean, <laughs> I guess this is such a big question, but um, how'd they do it? <laughs> like, I mean, we want to do it. Here's a Zion success story. I think uh, I think many of the obviously the people listening to our podcast are going, hey, I, I want to live in Zion. I I have this I I have the a quote from Elder Christofferson here. We will become of one heart and one mind as we individually place the Savior at the center of our lives. I've noticed for me personally, Avram, that I'm I'm like, yeah, I'm ready for Zion as soon as everyone else is ready for Zion, right? Like. <laughs> 
I always tell my students, I always, I always say, that'd be super easy to build if it were just me. You know? <laughs> but of course, the key point, and this is, this is actually the real struggle with it, is there is no Zion without everybody else. Zion is definitionally a community – and again, we saw this amply in our Doctrine and Covenants here this last year. But sometimes we say things like, oh, you know, I know the church is true, but not the people in it. Right. But one thing that Zion reminds us is there is no church without the people in it. Yeah. There's not some kind of super special magical church out in heaven that we're kind of sending to. It's just us. <laughs> And it's the same thing with Zion. It's Zion's just us. Fundamental one, Edward Christopherson, that talk suggests that we need all three of these things to build Zion. Any one of these is a great thing. Any one of these is, 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 is hugely part of what God wants us to do. But to be a Zion people, we need to keep the commandments to dwell in righteousness. We need to have that kind of unity that the Lord wants us to have. We need to have it so that there are no poor among us. We have to eliminate poverty. And, and again, Elder Christophan in that, he says, he says, the Lord has measured individual societies by how well they take care of the poor and needy among them. Every time I read that quote, I'm like, whoo, how am I doing? This reminds me of like thinking about how to answer that question is, is fourth Nephi. Yes. Uh, there was no contention. It says four different times because of the love of God which dwelt in the hearts of the people, and it mentions there were no poor. So fourth Nephi one is kind of another. We we did it. We created a Zion because of the love of God which dwelt in the hearts of the people. It says. Yes. We divide the world into categories, right? Male, female, black, white, Latter Day Saint, non Latter Day Saint. Gay, straight, all these various categories that we, you know, the, the, these various identities. And it's not that these identities are somehow wrong, right? One of the things that I love about Zion is Zion takes everybody. I mean, you think about how the, the Lord's created this world and you look, you, you just go outside and you look at people, right? You go to um, whatever, you go to your classes, your wards, and you see how many different kinds of people the Lord has created. How many different people there are in this world. And I, I love it. It's clear to me the Lord loves all of us. But what we do is we take these categories and then we treat people like objects. We treat them, and again, this is back to um, 2 Nephi 2. Lehi reminds us that there, you know, the Lord created things to act and things to be acted upon. And fundamentally, core doctrine, fundamentally, um, secret combinations, is, is treating people like things to be acted upon rather than as things to act. Honestly, Facebook's the anti-Zion. You know, they said that we don't agree with or whatever, and suddenly, suddenly they're an object. They're no longer a person. And then we act on them. And, and rather than saying, oh, wait, no, you're a thing to act, not a thing to be acted upon. Fundamentally, Cain killing Abel was Cain deciding that Abel was something to be acted upon rather than something to act. And for me, as I think about building Zion, fundamentally, it's about learning to treat people the way God treats them, which is like people. Yeah, when I use a hammer, I don't think about how it feels. I don't right. think about, right, um, if it's if it's going to be sad, I'm going to use it until it's, until it's worn out, I'm going to get a new one. But that's not people. I was just looking for it, but this reminds me because I, I I use a verse when I teach Book of Mormon about, look, they're treating people like things and things like people. It's Mormon 8.39, where this is Moroni taking over his father's record, but he says, Why do you adorn yourselves with that which hath no life, and yet suffer the hungry, the needy, the naked, and the sick? And I want to add, who have life, to pass by you and notice them not. You're treating things like people and people like things. It sounds to me like Mormon 8.39. And we'll see this later um, on. The one thing that makes God really, really mad is his children hurting each other, his children mistreating each other. Again, back to Hank's question there about how do we do this. Sometimes we look at it and we say, man, this is hard. And we just stop trying. We look around and we say, you know, and part of it, you know, we disagree, right? There's no contention in the land. Back here, our fourth Nephi um, example. But of course, no contention does not mean no disagreement. 
everybody doesn't think the same in Zion. But the secret is learning how do you get there? How do you learn to disagree in God's way? Because part of it, and this is the, another key thing about this, about consecration, about the cause and about each and every one of us. The consecrated, I have different gifts than my wife, than my children, than my students, than my bishop, than my Relief Society president. I have different gifts than, than you know, the consecrated Avram Shannon is not the same as the consecrated Hank Smith or John, by the way. Sometimes Latter-day Saints, we get this notion that we have to give up our individuality if we um, build Zion. To, to be one means we have to give up what makes us think of the us. And one thing I think is very clear and very important is in Zion, you are the most like you you will ever be. Because remember, God has always known you and he loves you for it. It's you he wants. And so the consecrated you is still going to be, and it's going to be the most like you, you could possibly be. This is the object. What did Jill Smith call it? The object of that uh, we should all be looking. The cause of Zion is the most important thing, he says. Yeah. And we should be thinking about this all day, all night. Um, <laughs> but for me, I, I'm, I'm the one. Um, and, and this is going to be a problem is, uh, I'm, I'm ready to build Zion, but I, I look around me. I'm like, well, no one else is ready. It looks like he's ready to build Zion. So I'm going to go ahead and just wait. I'll hold my efforts off until everybody else is ready to build Zion when it takes people who are ready to build Zion and then just get started for other people to say, I'm going to do it too. Fundamentally, because we don't, and this is, I think, your, um, to your point, Hank, because we don't know what everybody's potential are, we don't know what everybody's bringing to um, the table. That person that we're looking at and saying, oh, well, they're not building Zion, so I won't either. Maybe they are at this point. Maybe that's what they have to give. And, and it's not our mm. job to say, yes, you're not doing it, or I'm not doing it. We say, Okay, this is what you're giving. Here's what I can give. Let's do this all together. Because the whole point of Zion in some ways is there are lots of things that I can't give 100% in. I'm just, I just, there are things that I'm really good at, things that I'm not really good at. Right. Uh, there was one time I was a ward clerk. I had to do the um, Friends of Scouting. Friends, friends, friends of Scouting. scouting yeah. And I, I collected the money. I was the clerk. But nobody had trained me in how to deposit the money. So I sat on it. For a year until he got <laughs> audited and they found the envelope with all of the money and pledged it. And Bishop said, what is this, Brother Shannon? And I said, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. We got all, all the pledges were in. It was fine. They got them out. It, it, everything turned out okay in the end. Are you ever going to cash that check? <laughs> right. No, it, yeah. And somebody could look at that and say, well, he's not building Zion. But of course, what I needed was somebody to come and say, let me help you. And fundamentally, I think for me, the real question about building Zion is to ask, how can I help? Let me help. Wow. So it's the idea of, I'm not going to worry if so-and-so, if, if Shannon or if Peter is building Zion, I'm going to worry if I am building Zion and I'm going to give my full efforts and, and assume the best in, in others. It's, it's this notion of, you know, getting what you deserve, right? None of us get what we deserve, right? It's not so bad as all that. But we're so concerned sometimes with fairness. And one of the beautiful things about the gospel of Jesus Christ is it's fundamentally unfair. If it were fair, we'd all go to hell. So many of the parables, especially the laborers in the vineyard, yeah. the prodigal son is, is, is looking sideways instead of, oh, look, I got... Uh, I was paid. It was, well, hey, what about, hey, hey, wait a minute. You, <laughs> it was, it's looking sideways and comparing. And that's what, isn't that what C.S. Lewis said? It's the pride isn't pleasure in having something, but having more of it than the next man. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> Interesting. Um, people will ask me, you know, when do you think the second coming is going to be? And, and over the years, my mind has become, I think the Lord's waiting on us. <laughs> He's, He's like, I'm, I'm ready when you're ready. You want to build Zion? I, as soon as it's there, I'll, I'll be there. Uh, and so we're waiting for him. He's waiting for us. So 
what would you say if someone listening said, okay, I'm in, I want to build Zion. What do I do? I think it, I think what elder Christofferson says is, is okay. Start with you, your family, your word, and your stake. Start with your circle of influence. And look for ways to help. The secret to building Zion is just to go and build Zion. We talk ourselves out of it. We say, oh, we can't do it. Oh, we can't whatever. And say, no, 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 no. We can do it. If, the, if nothing else from this um, experience, us talking together, comes to um, any of your listeners, I, my firm testimony that we can build Zion right now. We have all the tools and all the ability. We can do it. And I would say the real secret is just to do it. Repent of your sins. Help other people. Look for people who need your help. Again, find a way, however you want to do it. This is, this is not about politics. But we have to eliminate poverty. Find way, how, however you think is the best way to do that. That's fine. I have my opinions about how I think I would do it. But honestly, this notion of we cannot say, oh, well, you know, they're just poor, whatever. We have to find a way to eliminate poverty. So find ways to help um, people who are less fortunate than us. Or if you're the poor, find ways to be helped. As we've been talking about Zion, scriptures keep coming to mind that, I mean, it's, it's just over and over, right? Jacob too. It's the pride in your hearts and your sins, your, your sexual sins that are keeping you from, from God. Then King Benjamin, right? You're turning away the poor. You are, uh, you're not keeping the commandments. So we can build Zion, repent of our sins, find ways to, to help those who are suffering. Yeah. That's it. Right. And again, obviously, um, that's not it because we'd have done it yet, but, but that's it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's, uh, the, the church has re-kind of uh, articulated the the mission of the church. Uh, do you remember the days of President Kimball? It was proclaim the gospel, perfect the saints, redeem the dead. And then President Monson uh, added, take care of the poor and needy. And now uh, the newest handbook has it, uh, live the gospel, care for those in need. It I, I like that it just says, in sometimes somebody that is... Uh, wealthy by some measure is in need, so it's it's live the gospel, care for those in need. Um, let's see, live, care, invite all to come unto Christ, and unite families for eternity. And you know that could be one way to answer: How do we create Zion? Live the gospel, care for those in need, invite all to come to Christ, unite families for eternity. Back to Joseph Smith and the idea that you know the cause of Zion is the object. This is what the church is organized for. This is what the restoration is for. It's to build Zion. And so if you want to build Zion, live the gospel. Do the things yeah. you're asked to do. Help each other. And, and Avram, I like what you said earlier. This isn't about money. It's about hearts. Right? Because you could say, oh, if we just had enough money, we'd, we'd make everybody equal. But that wouldn't change anybody's heart. Yes, they were of one heart and one mind because of their hearts. There was no poor. It wasn't, there was no poor. So that changed their hearts. Yes. Would be the Lord be pleased even if our hearts were changed and no poor among us? I think he would. I absolutely think the Lord would um, be absolutely happy if we could eliminate poverty without changing our hearts. But that wouldn't be Zion. Al Christofferson says to build Zion, you've got to have all three. Yeah, this is, this is great stuff. And it has to be by choice, right? Because I could say... I could say, well, let's force everyone to to be of one heart and one mind and and take care of the poor. But is that Zion? Well, again, back to Second Nephi 2 for a second and things to act and things to be acted upon. What makes our doctrine work is the fact that we are agents. I mean, Second Nephi 2 is what? It's about the atonement. But it's no mistake. When Lehi starts laying out the atonement, he lays out first this notion of choice and having choices and being able to choose. Um, agency is fundamental and foundational to Latter-day Saint doctrine. So we're choosing Zion in a way. We're, we have to choose Zion. We have it, to choose to be, to become Zionish. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You have to, it has to be chosen uh, because I, you know, why doesn't the Lord just make us then if he wants Zion so bad, make us. Well, if he made us, it's not Zion. Righteousness is only righteousness if it's freely chosen. 
Yeah, freely given, freely received. That's Paul's phrase for it. So we all just kind of sit and stare at verse 18 for a while. My dissertation advisor once asked, once told me, he's like, we talk about, you know, writing the dissertation. And he's like, you know how you get to write an astrosovrum? One bite at a time. You know how you build Zion? One heart at a time. One brick at a time. One brick at a time. You just, you just do it. And I really think for me, that's the real secret is, is we just, we just got to do it. Yeah. I'll go get started in my way and I'll, I'll hope people choose to, to, to do it in their way or join me in my way, help me out. Or, um, or even I'll presume that they're doing it in their way. Ooh, I like I'll that. I'll presume that they are. I'll presume that we're, that we're doing this together. And I'll move forward. And I'll move Mother forward. Teresa. Yeah. Right? I'll, yeah, exactly. I'll, in my sphere of influence, I will do good. Yeah. I don't have a reference for this. It's just one of those I've heard that Mother Teresa had said, uh, we're not called to be successful in all things. We're called to be faithful in all things. And we're all faithfully trying to build Zion. I like that idea. I wanted to mention one more thing that I had written in my scriptures. I have no idea where it came from. I just wrote it down years ago. But under where it said, and there was no poor among them, um, we've been talking about poverty. Uh, I also put that that everyone is valued. I don't see someone as, as less valuable to Zion uh, because of fill in the blank, the way they look, how much money they have, how much, you know, anything at all, any, any characteristic of them. I don't see them as less valuable. There is no poor among them, meaning everyone is valued. I, I have no idea why I wrote that in or who told me to do it, but. And I think it feeds on what we talked about a little earlier is the problem is the comparison. Definitionally, no poor among them means no rich among them, but we're not right. talking about monetary amounts here. We're talking about everybody having what they want and need sufficient for their needs sufficient for their needs and again part of this this is why it's so hard right i mean you know there's so much we want i was doing um the the ten commandments in in hebrew once just you know just working through it and you know there's that great bit about you know thou shalt not covet and of course you know we're like covet what's covet mean the verb there means thou shalt not want and it's a really like oh that's much harder suddenly god (laughs) that's much harder my house currently, I would love a larger kitchen. My kitchen is currently terrible to cook in. I just, I just, uh, it's one of those things where every, every day I'm cooking and I'm like, why did I think this was a good idea to move here? I, I love to cook <laughs> or whatever, but I don't know that I need very many more bedrooms than I already have. Even what I want and need um, differs from person to person. And so having no poor among us is not saying there's one standard for what that means, but it means that nobody feels the want. Nobody feels like they don't have enough, both economically, spiritually, physically, whatever. Nobody feels like they are outside of the community and they are outside of of what it is. This is such a fantastic discussion. So, Alvaram, we looked at one heart. We looked at one mind dwelt in righteousness, right? What does that phrase mean to you? Well, of course, dwelt there means to live or to stay or to sit, right? It's, it's this notion that there's some things that are specific to building Zion. Again, being one heart mind, united according to the social kingdom, eliminating poverty, making sure that everybody feels wanted. But of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ is fundamentally relational. And that's just, that's just the, the, the fact of, you know, it's, it's no mistake that the two great commandments are love God and love your neighbor. So they're fundamentally relational in that sense. And fundamentally building Zion then is about those relationships. And one heart and one mind, no poor among us is about our horizontal relationships. Dwelling in righteousness is about our vertical relationship. Our relationship with God. Our relationship with God. And so, and so fundamentally, I think that this, this key notion of, of both loving God and loving each other is how you build Zion. And you've got to have all of it to build Zion. Uh, Elder Christofferson, Zion is Zion because of the character, attributes, and faithfulness of her citizens. If we would establish Zion in our homes, branches, wards, and stakes, we must rise to this standard. There's no other way to do it. We must yep. rise to this standard. Um, it will be necessary. And here's the three you, you were talking about. It will be necessary one to become unified in one heart, one mind 
Two, to become individually and collectively a holy people. Three, to care for the poor and needy with such effectiveness that we eliminate poverty among us. We cannot wait until Zion comes for these things to happen. Zion will come only as they happen, as we choose them. It's very daunting. It's very powerful. But again, Elder Christofferson, more than anything else, he says, but it's something that we can do. Yeah. Hmm. When I hear about President Monson giving up his vacation days to visit the 90 widows in his ward, or when I hear about George he Albert Smith. made them all turkey who, dinners, yeah. Yeah, George Albert Smith, who took his brand new coat off at the Humanitarian Aid Center and set it on the donation table. And <laughs> we have so many stories of people who, of, of amazing men and women who are, who are doing this, who have dedicated their life to the Lord. And they've overcome selfishness. John, do you remember the quote uh, that was shared with us from uh, Edward Partridge? Do you remember? Edward Partridge, oh. who basically was in charge of Zion for a, a long time, said, I have torn myself from the affection of this world's goods. Of this world, yeah. I have torn myself from the affection of this world's goods. I, I'm, Man, I wish I had it right in front of me. I can... I can, I remember writing it down in my Doctrine and Covenants and just thinking about that. How do you tear yourself? But the, I mean, the, we have example after example after example, don't we, Avram, of people who have decided that they're going to do it? Just in my ward last week, there was a brother who was giving a talk and told about an experience as a teenager where he, his dad had bought him a pair of new shoes and they were walking downtown somewhere and there was a guy there who had no shoes. And this brother took off his shoes as a teenage boy, took off his shoes and gave him to this man. And then they went and they bought a much less nice pair of shoes for that. And I'm like, I mean, literally, there are stories of saints giving the shoes off their feet. I mean, it's, it's powerful. All right. Let me tell you a story. This was on um, NPR. So not, not, you know, the Desert News. This was uh, National Public Radio said a, and this is back when you could say Mormon, a Mormon bishop in Taylorsville, Utah went to great lengths last Sunday to teach his congregation a lesson. David Musselman disguised himself as a homeless person and walked around outside the church before the service. He said, quote, the majority of, of the people of my ward just ignored me and went great, went to great lengths to not make eye contact. Some stopped, gave him an apple, crackers, or $20. Quote, I was most impressed with the children. The children were very eager. They wanted to reach out and help me in some way. He was also told by several members of his ward to leave the property. I had some people that went out of their way to let me know this was not a place to ask for charity and I was not welcome. <laughs> Sorry. We're still trying here. Bishop Musselman told only his second counselor that he would be disguised as the homeless man. He purposely walked into the front of the chapel and sat in the front row at the beginning of sacrament meeting. After his counselor's talk, the bishop had the counselor lean forward across the stand um, and whisper he wanted to say a few words. The second counselor informed the congregation, quote, brothers and sisters, this homeless man would like to say a few words. Sorry, I just describing him that way. This homeless man. This homeless man. <laughs> Not this man. After receiving a few wary looks, Bishop Musselman walked to the stand behind the pulpit and began thanking the people for the kindness they showed. He talked about some of the money he'd received and said he wanted to give a portion of it back as a token of appreciation. He asked where the bishop was so he could give the money to him. When no one spoke... Bishop Musselman took off his wig and glasses to show that he was, in fact, the ward's bishop. Listen to this. It had a shock value I did not anticipate. <laughs> I, I really did not have any idea that the members of my ward would gasp as big as they did. Some started crying. Others said nothing. Many came forward to apologize for their indifference to the bishop at the end of the service and announced they wanted to do something to atone for their actions. Musselman said, I felt horrible that they felt so horrible. But he said, I believe the experiment was more potent than any sermon I could have given on the subject. It did have the effect I'd hoped it would have. Then he said this, I learned something that I was not expecting. 
We don't always have to give money or food. But if we really believe what we say we believe, shouldn't we smile and make eye contact and allow everyone a little bit of human dignity? We need to treat them like people. Like people. And not like objects. Yeah. Um, and the other part of the children. Isn't that interesting? Right? We, as, as, what did the Savior say? Um, except you become as this little child, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. So can you imagine telling the bishop to leave the property? <laughs> and then afterwards, he's the bishop. And you're like, hey, remember what I said to you about – yeah. I mean, oh, that be... people would start crying. They just felt so indicted at that point. Wow, I mean. King Benjamin, when you're in the service of your fellow beings, you are in the service of your God. Avram, we've spent a lot of time on one verse. We've really, but every family, I would maybe say every family who's listening, spend some time in Moses 7, 18. Talk about it with your kids. What does it Talk mean? Talk about what you can do to build Zion right now, because you can do it right now. Just just sit down and say, what can I do? Just anything to build Zion. Absolutely. Please join us for part two of this podcast.